My name is Ann Kenigsmark, and I'm an English teacher, a writer, and a former journalist. And now I am your host for Cocktail Party Takeaways, a podcast for anyone with regrets, but not deep ones, about the books they slept through in high school. battles lost and won. That will be by the set of sun. Where the place? Upon the heath. There to meet with Macbeth. I come, Grey Malkin. What a calls. Anon. And so begins Macbeth, otherwise known as the Scottish play, by William Shakespeare. Spooky, no? A cocktail party takeaways deep dive into Shakespeare feels both inevitable and intimidating. I am not one of those people who have read all the plays. I don't think the history plays are the best, or that the comedies are real knee slappers. The few times I have taught one of the comedies, I have spent three weeks screaming, It's funny! But these tragedies, they get me. I love Othello, who will forever be Lawrence Fishburne, the actor who played the romantic Moor in the 1995 movie. Some of those last lines, put out the light, and then put out the light, he says to his beloved Desdemona just before he murders her because his best friend duped him into believing she was unfaithful. And that ending, when he speaks of how he hopes to be remembered, makes me cry every time. When you shall these unlucky deeds relate, speak of me as I am, nothing extenuate, nor set down aught in malice. Then must you speak of one that loved not wisely, but too well, of one not easily jealous, but being wrought, perplexed in the extreme, of one whose hand, like the base Judean, threw a pearl away, richer than all his tribe. Through more than a decade of teaching the tragedy of Macbeth, the doomed hero has sprung vividly to life as the embodiment of our darkest yearnings, an object lesson in how far we will go to get what we want and keep it. Like Oedipus, Macbeth is a great man brought low by a belief in human invincibility. The difference is that while Oedipus was avoiding something, Macbeth was, as the kids these days say, manifesting. It's interesting that one of our greatest weaknesses springs from one of our greatest strengths, the power of the imagination. In season one of Cocktail Party Takeaways, I called Eleanor from the haunting of Hill House notiony when she invented alternate lives for herself as she drove away from her dreary actual life. She sets herself up nicely for inevitable disappointment later and for becoming a target of an evil house that feeds on human insecurities. 
If Jay Gatsby had a flaw, it was his imagination. And imagination is at the root of many of our fears, no? You are imagining monsters that are not there, or awful things that have not happened. Lord knows I have an overactive imagination. When I was a child, I could not enter a shopping mall until my mother had trapped the big bad wolf in the revolving doors. But then I also imagined that one day I could be a writer. And imagination makes penicillin, airplanes, and iPhones. Imaginations make poetry, music, art. Imagination and faith share some kinship. They fuel trips around the world and to the moon. Imagination is the reason we fall in love. But imaginations are also terrible, responsible for concocting ideas like the Holocaust and slavery, treason, assassination, and regicide. I've got some really fun background information that you can drop into casual conversation at your next party and sound wicked smart. Wicked is the operative word here, for when you open this play, something wicked this way comes. I would make that little witchy phrase, first heard in Macbeth and later the title of a novel by Ray Bradbury, the first cocktail party takeaway, except that we need to take care of some business with the Scottish play first. Many of you may know that it is strictly forbidden to say Macbeth inside a theater unless you are actually staging the play and have to say it. It is considered very bad luck to do so. So where did this taboo come from? Apparently, the play was cursed from the start, and rumor had it at the time that it was because Shakespeare used authentic witch incantations in his script. How anyone knew that, I don't know. And where did he get them? Elizabethan TikTok? Witches weren't exactly walking around advertising themselves. They'd get burned for that, you know. In the very first staging of the play, some 400 years ago, the actor playing Lady Macbeth yes, all of the actors were men, no women in Shakespeare's troupe, died suddenly before the play could even begin, and Shakespeare himself had to step in and play her. According to legend, things just kept happening during performances of Macbeth. Once they used a real dagger, and the poor actor playing King Duncan actually died of his stab wounds. In 1849, a riot broke out in New York, killing and wounding dozens all because of a rivalry between actors playing Macbeth at the same time. Nothing tickles me more than the thought of people caring enough about Shakespeare to start a lethal street brawl. And so on. So just don't do it. But if you do do it, there is an antidote. Walk out of the theater, spin around three times, spit over your left shoulder, and say a line from Shakespeare or a profanity. And then, having learned your lesson, Go back and remember to refer to Macbeth from then on as simply the Scottish play. So why did Shakespeare write a Scottish play anyway? And why did he put witches in it? I have all the answers. But first, a teeny bit of Shakespeare history. Will was born on April 23, 1564 and died on his birthday, tough luck, in 1616. Somewhere in that not super long life, he managed to write 38 plays 154 sonnets, and two longer narrative poems. Shakespeare's work birthed storylines and story designs we still use today. Star-crossed lovers, the corruption of the powerful, family rivalries, jealousy, people turning into donkeys. Well, maybe that last one didn't stand the test of time. And Shakespeare is credited with introducing something like 1,700 words into the English language. 
For much of Shakespeare's life, Queen Elizabeth reigned. Crazy that she just died, right? I'm kidding. Wrong Elizabeth. This was Elizabeth I, the so-called virgin queen who was married to England. She was an enthusiastic patron of the arts and supported Shakespeare's theater, The Globe. After her came King James I. I'm going to take a little risk here and let myself sound dumb for a second. I was flabbergasted when I began teaching both American studies and Shakespeare, and I figured out that Shakespeare was at his height as a playwright at the same time King James was sending the first ships to North America and setting up a colony. Jamestown, you know the one, Virginia, Tobacco, John Smith, Pocahontas, all that, was settled in 1607, just one year after Shakespeare wrote Macbeth. I don't know about you, but I just didn't think of those events as contemporaneous. I know, fancy word, that was to make up for sounding stupid about historic timelines. The play borrows from real events that took place in the early 11th century in Scotland. By the way, I am totally absolutely going to spoil the plot of the play right off the bat, so if you have somehow missed the plot up to now, press pause and go back and read or watch it. The newest version with Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand, is pretty awesome. A little stark, but powerful. So back in the thousands, Scotland was kind of like Compton in the 80s, small bands of merry men in tights carving out territory for themselves. In Compton, they were the Crips and the Bloods. In medieval Scotland, they were called Thanes. Royal heads rolled not infrequently. One such head was that of King Duncan, slain by his Scottish countrymen, Macbeth. It is on this true event that Shakespeare's play is loosely based. Now, King James, who, to recap, was on the throne at the time of the writing of Macbeth and was busily sending the first ships to what would be America, was Scottish. And he believed, though it later turned out he was wrong, but that doesn't matter, that he was the descendant of another Scot who was a contemporary to Macbeth and Duncan, a fellow called Banquo. So to please his royal patron, Shakespeare created a Scottish play in which King James's supposed ancestor, Banquo, is a minor but heroic character. Okay, so we get that part. Now, why witches? When King James wasn't sending ships to the so-called New World, he was home obsessing about how much he hated witches. Of course, he wasn't alone. No one liked witches, and hundreds were burned and hanged and otherwise terminated around England during Elizabeth and James's reigns. And don't go throwing stones at England. We were burning and hanging witches over here even later in 1692. People believed witches had all sorts of powers, some pretty cool, some just kind of weird. They could predict the future, cool, fly, cooler, sail in sieves, weird, why, bring on the night, isn't that a song by the police, cause fogs and tempests and kill animals. Um, can't anyone do that? They often had a familiar, like a cat or other animal. Common wisdom was that the devil gave it to them in exchange for a chance to suck their blood. Thus the frantic stripping of accused witches to look for the devil's mark. It is said that in 1590, a group of witches tried to kill King James. This fueled his obsession with these alleged fiends, driving him to publish Demonology in 1597, a book on witchcraft. Therein, King James said that anyone who was a witch 
was friends with a witch, took a selfie with a witch, or in any other way fraternized or sought out a witch should be punished. How? Quote, extermination. Keep that in mind as we move through the play. Finally, King James must have been really annoying because he was the target of yet another assassination attempt, this one by a group of Catholics who felt persecuted by their Protestant king. They planned to blow up Parliament and the king and queen with it, but someone snitched and one conspirator, Guy Fox, was caught red-handed with explosives. He was arrested, tortured, and executed, and now the British celebrate Guy Fawkes Day annually by burning him in effigy. So a play about a conspiracy to kill a king and a bloody downfall of the conspirator would be right up James's alley. Shakespeare was kind of a suck-up or a master of marketing. So when I begin teaching a Shakespeare play, I always ask the kids, what's so hard about Shakespeare? Inevitably, a kid will blurt out, it's not in English. Okay, but it is, but I understand. So we break down what's so hard. First of all, the syntax is all twisted up. I call it Yoda language, as in hungry I am. Second, there are words you don't know or words that are being used in unfamiliar ways. Finally, there's that figurative language that is sometimes so elaborate and so embedded in a speech that it's hard to tell you've wandered off into a comparison. So if you're not paying close attention, you might be like, wait, when did a bear come on stage? So let's take a look at a speech from Act 1, Scene 2 of Macbeth and see if we can't wrestle this language into submission. In this scene, a wounded soldier comes to report that Macbeth has been a heroic victor in a battle. Doubtful it stood, as two spent swimmers that do cling together and choke their art, the merciless Macdonald, worthy to be a rebel, for to that the multiplying villainies of nature do swarm upon him, and from the western isles of kerns and gallowglasses is supplied. And fortune, on his damned quarrel smiling, showed like a rebel's whore, but all's too weak for brave Macbeth, well he deserves that name, disdaining fortune with his brandished steel, which smoked with bloody execution, like valor's minion carved out his passage till he faced the slave, which ne'er shook hands nor bade farewell to him till he unseamed him from the knave to the chops and fixed his head upon our battlements. Right, right. So Macbeth is like at a swim meet and he's fighting with a weak whore. There were slaves in medieval Scotland. Okay. Doubtful it stood is just Yoda speak for things looked bad. You got that, right? The as on the next line signals some figurative language ahead. Remember, a simile uses like or as. So the two armies are like two tired swimmers dragging each other down. I know you are thinking I am a total genius for getting that from the phrase choke their art. I am not. I just make liberal use of the notes included in nearly every edition of a Shakespeare play. I use the Folger Shakespeare Library edition in case you want to know. Next, this bad guy, McDonwald, totally deserves his title of rebel because of all the yucky elements of human nature that are all over him like flies on stink. I realize using figurative language to explain figurative language is slightly annoying, but I can't help myself. Then comes more Yoda syntax and weird words. 
Kearns and Galloglasses are apparently fierce Irish soldiers helping the enemy. Next, Fortune is personified and therefore connotes the goddess Fortune, who, because McDonwald is winning, is like a lady friend of the rebel, smiling viciously on McDonwald's arm as he gets the upper hand in battle. Right? Right. What kind of a name is McDonwald, anyway? It's like Donald Duck at the Golden Arches. So the bad guy is winning and things look bad. The rest is a bit clearer. Super soldier Macbeth is like, yeah, I got this. He spits on fortune and with his sword, his seal, which by the way, he has used to kill so many people, it is smoking. He carves out his passage. I think we know what that means, a high body count. He is so brave that he is like the darling favorite of valor personified. And now he faces the quote slave, which in Shakespeare language just means the lowest of the low. Then, without so much as a hey howdy, he slices open his opponent from the belly, the knave, to his throat, the chops. So you can let your mind fill with images of his guts spilling out all over the place, and then watch Macbeth cut off his head and stick it on top of the Scottish fortress walls or whatever. Phew, we did it. See, it's not so hard. Okay, so let's back up to the one-page opener to the play, Act 1, Scene 1. The stage direction reads, Thunder and lightning, enter three witches. Then they have this conversation. When shall we three meet again? In thunder, lightning, or in rain? When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won, that will be ere the set of sun. Where the place? Upon the heath. There to meet with Macbeth. I come, Grimalkin. Paddock calls. Anon. Fair is foul, and foul is fair. Hover through the fog and filthy air. This short scene is filled with goodies. First of all, there are lots of tells that these are witches. They are deciding what the weather will be. They have familiars, Grimalkin and Paddock, and they can fly. They also speak in riddles. The battle lost and won, fair is foul and foul is fair. These paradoxes will become central to the idea that man, specifically Macbeth, hears what he wants to hear from the witches. Okay, class, what's a paradox? A paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. And let's not fly by that word hurly-burly too quickly. It means a hubbub, a ruckus. For those of you under 35, it means an uproar of some sort. This is one of those great words like maundering from Oedipus Rex that needs to come back into regular use. Fun fact, for sure a cocktail party takeaway. There is a play by David Rabe called Hurly Burly, and I actually saw it in 1984, I remember it clearly because my mom and I had front row seats, but we were so far to the right of the stage that our visibility was pretty limited. But allow me to flex. The production was produced by Mike Nichols, and the actors included William Hurt, Christopher Walken, Harvey Keitel, Jerry Stiller, Judith Ivey, Sigourney Weaver, and Cynthia Nixon. Okay, The fact that these women in all of their witchiness are planning to meet the titular character of the play spells trouble for Macbeth. Remember, any fraternizing with witches 
is an offense punishable by death, according to King James. And finally, the witches say they are going to hover through the fog and filthy air. Let's talk about that word filthy for a quick sec. Way back in February of 1989, when I was a senior at the University of Pennsylvania, I wrote a paper for Professor Peter Stolybras on, quote, the various meanings of the word filthy in Shakespeare's Macbeth. I still have the paper, and I actually use it when I teach Macbeth to my 10th graders. In this masterwork of undergraduate scholarship, I point out that the word filthy is used three times in this play, always by a woman or in reference to a woman. Filthy has the definition you'd expect, dirty, unclean. But I argue that filthy attaches itself to the women in this play to imply that they themselves are unclean in the moral sense, filthy as corrupt, sexually deviant even. These are definitions in the Oxford English Dictionary. Author and professor Mary Douglas says in her book, Purity and Danger, that societies see dirt as, quote, matter out of place. Watch how the men in Macbeth ultimately dispense with the women in this play. The next scene is the sum-up exposition about what a beast boy Macbeth is in battle. Then in the next scene, Macbeth and his wingman, Banquo, who is, remember, a supposed ancestor of King James, are walking in the woods when they come upon three mysterious women. Banquo says they are dressed so wildly that they look not like inhabitants of the earth. Quote, you should be women, and yet your beards forbid me to interpret that you are. These beards are an important symbol in the play. These women have three key characteristics. They are powerful, they are evil, and they look like men. This is not accidental. The play seems to be saying that it is unnatural, even evil, for women to possess the power normally reserved for men. So these women hail Macbeth as the Thane of Gloms. Well, that is, in fact, what he is. And just FYI, a Thane is a royal title, like Lord or Knight. They then hail him as Thane of Cawdor, which he is not. We actually just heard in the battle scene prior that the Thane of Cawdor has been discovered to be a traitor. He will be executed and his title will be given to Macbeth as a reward for his courageous acts in battle. But at this point, Macbeth doesn't know that, but the audience does. So the audience gets to have a little tickle of wonder about the power these witches possess. Then they say, all hail Macbeth, that shalt be king hereafter. Banquo hears this and treats it as you or I would. He's like, cool trick, ladies, what you got for me? I mean, I think you're full of crap, but let's hear it anyway. And they tell Banquo that he will be lesser than Macbeth and greater. Not so happy, but much happier. It's no wonder these women are later called equivocating fiends. Then they say to him, thou shalt get kings, though thou be none, meaning you will never be a king, but your kids will be kings. They disappear, presumably into thin air, or at least fog and filthy air, and Banquo's like, well, this will be a good one to take home to the wife, but Macbeth? Macbeth is entranced, or rapt, as Banquo puts it. Right after this scene, some of the king's dudes ride up and tell Macbeth he is now Thane of Cawdor. Banquo is like, what? Can the devil speak true? But then he says, well, let's be cautious here. Sometimes evil will tell us what we want to hear and give us an easy one and then ensnare us later. Macbeth, however, has a very different reaction. 
for reasons that only Macbeth knows, his immediate thought is, holy shit, I'm going to kill the king. He says to himself, why do I yield to that suggestion whose horrid image doth unfix my hair and make my seated heart knock at my ribs? He speaks of wanting to be able to do this deed unseen by any moral judge, such as God. Stars, hide your fires. Let not light see my black and deep desires. Then we meet the real badass of the show, Lady Macbeth. She appears on stage reading a letter from her husband about what has happened. He calls her his dearest partner of greatness, which signals that these two are one of those social climbing couples. And what does she say when she receives the letter? She is worried her dearest partner of greatness is, well, too soft. I do fear thy nature, she says in her very first speech. It is too full of the milk of human kindness to catch the nearest way. He's too nice to do what needs to be done, whatever that may be, to become king. She wants him to get home quickly so she can, quote, pour my spirits in thine ear and chastise with the valor of my tongue all that impedes thee from the golden round. Spirits? Poor? Who sounds like a witch now? And she is going to punish her husband with her valor and make sure nothing stands between him and the crown, the golden round. Hmm, wasn't it Macbeth who was just called Valor's minion for his bravery in battle? A messenger then enters and tells her King Duncan is in fact on his way to her house, I mean her castle, that very night to congratulate Macbeth on his victories and his promotion. This is when Lady really winds up her witchiness. The raven itself is hoarse that croaks the fatal entrance of Duncan under my battlements. At this point, you're a regular Shakespeare scholar. You got this. A blackbird symbolizing death is literally losing his voice, screaming, Gah! Duncan's going to die. Then she encants. Come, you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts. And here, mortal means deadly. Unsex me here and fill me from the crown to the toe top, full of direst cruelty. Note that to be cruel enough to kill, she thinks she must no longer be a woman. Come to my women's breasts and take my milk for gall, you murdering ministers. Uh, so she wants the nasty poison bile of our livers to come out of her breasts? And who the heck are the murdering ministers? Come, thick night, and pall thee in the dunnest smoke of hell, that my keen knife not see the wound it makes, nor heaven peep through the blanket of the dark to cry, hold, hold. So she, like Macbeth, wants to hide her sinful plans from heaven, even almost from herself, an act done in such darkness that the knife can't see where it stabs. So again, the play is making a clear connection between masculinity and power and insinuating pretty explicitly that women with power are unnatural, evil creatures. Meanwhile, Macbeth comes home and reunites with his lovely wife and out of her hearing begins to have doubts. He's like, geez, this guy is going to be a guest in my house and he is so well loved and he's my cousin for Christ's sakes and I just got this awesome promotion. This is a bad idea. 
So he says so to Lady Macbeth, who's like, so were you drunk when you first came up with this idea? Because you were super manly when you did, and now you seem, well, I guess from now on, I'll just assume you're putting on a show when you tell me you love me. And he's like, look, I I am a man. And she's like, well, you were a man when you came up with this idea. So he starts to yield, but he says, well, what if we mess up? And she's like, we won't. As long as you stop sweating through your ermine and put on your game face and leave everything to me. Act two begins with Macbeth hallucinating. He has worked himself into such a fever that he thinks he sees a dagger floating in front of him. Come, let me clutch thee, he says. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. Art not fatal vision, sensible to feeling as to sight, or art thou but a dagger of the mind? So he is freaking out a little, yes, but he is now also dead set on killing Duncan and thinks the dagger is leading him to the deed. By the next scene, Duncan is dead and Macbeth is in a full freakout. He thinks that Duncan's guards, who, by the way, they're planning to frame for the murder, have said amen, but that he was physically unable to say it back. Wherefore could I not pronounce amen? I had most need of blessing, and amen stuck in my throat. So Macbeth is consumed with guilt and definitely feels like those stars he was talking about in Act 1 have caught him red-handed. He then goes on and on about how the guards accused him of, quote, murdering sleep. In Elizabethan times, sleep was seen as vital, not only to your physical health, but for your soul. Not sleeping can cause your brain to dry out, which can in turn lead to madness. Sleep is seen as the image or brother of death. While asleep, the body rests, but the soul remains awake, just as in death, the body rests while the soul and spirit live on. One Elizabethan dude proposed that in the normal state of mind and body, there are spirits that are the vehicle of all processes of life proceeding from the soul. They are created by the action of bodily heat upon the moisture of food. They flow from the heart and all around and finally out through the pores and evaporate. Sleep, then, is a warming and moistening of the spirits, and when it is complete, we wake up. Yes, I said all of that with a straight face. Is it really that much weirder than drinking bleach to cure COVID? So when Macbeth says he thought he heard Duncan's guards say, sleep no more, Macbeth does murder sleep. He then rhapsodizes about the benefits of sleep, now presumably lost to him. The innocent sleep, sleep that knits up the raveled sleeve of care, the death of each day's life, sore labor's bath, balm of hurt minds, Great nature's second course, chief nourisher in life's feast. Lady Macbeth, meanwhile, is like, what the are you talking about? No one said anything, and honestly, you sound, quote, brain sickly. Go get some water and wash this filthy witness from your hand. For those keeping track at home, and I know that's exactly no one, except maybe my old pen professor, Stalybras, This is the second mention of the word filthy. Macbeth is totally unconvinced. He knows that what he has done will not simply wash off. Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? No, this hand will rather the multitudinous seas incarnadine, making the green one red. 
There are two words to love in this fabulous hyperbolic statement. Multitudinous totally needs to make a comeback, along with maundering. Remember that one from Oedipus Rex. Let's get Hurley Burley on the comeback tour as well, shall we? And incarnadine, that's a verb, people, which means to turn something red. Like when I make Christmas cookies, I incarnadine one bowl of icing red to make bows and Santa hats. Lady is still unfazed by this drama. A little water clears us of this deed. How easy it is then. Such an interesting way to say this, that water will literally absolve them. Two things to note here. She is on the surface saying that just ridding themselves of the evidence is enough. But water also clears our souls of original sin when we are baptized, no? She is making a fatal error, believing one can commit cold-blooded murder and wash one's hands and soul of it and walk on by. So the next morning, everyone wakes to discover the king is dead, and Macbeth puts on this great show of grief. I wish I could have died before this moment because everything is so awful now, blah, blah, blah. Oh, and by the way, in my rage and grief, uh, I might have killed Duncan's guards. To which Lady Macbeth is like, uh, what? And she faints. That was not part of the plan. But one can assume that if Macbeth thought they were squawking in the night about what he did, he was sure shooting going to make sure they squawked no more. He then frames Duncan's sons, alleging they paid the guards to murder their dad. So they now run off to England and Ireland before they lose their necks as well. And what do you know? Macbeth has gotten exactly what he wanted at the end of Act 2. He is king. But not comfortably so. In Act 3, he delivers a soliloquy. To be thus is nothing, but to be safely thus, he says. He is worried about his old pal Banquo. First of all, he worries Banquo is a good guy, too good to go along with regicide in a corrupt king on the throne. No matter how close they are, if Banquo decides to really worry about how Macbeth became king, he is likely to act. Second, he is really stuck on the prophecy the witches bestowed on Banquo. Quote, Upon my head they placed a fruitless crown and put a barren scepter in my grip, then to be wrenched with an unlineal hand, no son of mine succeeding, if it be so, for Banquo's issue have I filed my mind. For them, the gracious Duncan, have I murdered, put rancors in the vessels of my peace, only for them, and mine eternal jewel, given to the common enemy of man, to make them kings, the seeds of Banquo kings, rather than so, come fate into the list, and champion me to the utterance. Banquo's issue and his seeds are references to Banquo's children. Note he feels his mind has been defiled and that he has put rancors, defined as bitter resentfulness, in the places where normally one would find peace. More importantly, he says he knows he is going to hell. He has given his eternal jewel, his soul, to the devil, the common enemy of man. This is a dangerous state to be in, unsettled, jealous, and with zero Fs to give because you already know you've damned yourself. So he says, come fate into the list. The list is the medieval jousting arena. So he is daring fate to a fight to the death. This is never good. Just ask Oedipus or Gatsby. So then he sees Banquo and he's like, hey man, don't forget about our big banquet tonight. All the Thanes are going to be there. 
Special seat saved just for you. Oh, you're going riding? Where to? Uh-huh, okay. And um, how long do you think you'll be out? Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. And, oh, just curious, is your son going too? He is, okay, cool. Yeah, so what time are you leaving? Why don't you just send me your Waze route just so I know where you're going and when you'll be getting back. Maybe we can pregame with some mead. Later, man. Exit Banquo. Enter three hired murderers who will track down Banquo and his son to assassinate them. So in the next scene, the big banquet begins and everyone's like, drink, drink, drink. And the murderers come in and tell Macbeth they've killed Banquo, but that his son has escaped. Surprise, surprise. Macbeth is standing around freaking out quietly when everyone sits. Someone says, Papa Squat, King. And Macbeth looks around and says, well, there are no seats left. Which seems weird because wouldn't the king have a special seat? But maybe things were different in medieval Scotland. Then all of a sudden he shouts at an empty chair, Thou canst say I did it. Never shake thy gory locks at me. He is seeing Banquo's ghost, blood in his hair, sitting at the table. No one else sees it. One of the thanes says, uh, maybe we should leave. Macbeth is obviously sick. And Lady Macbeth is like, no, 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 he's fine. He's always been like this since he was a kid. To him, she seethes, are you a man? This is just like the time when you saw the dagger, you whack job girly boy. Macbeth weakly defends himself, and meanwhile, the ghost leaves only to appear again. Macbeth shouts, avant, and quit my sight. And that's it for the party. Turd in the pool, time to go. The ghost, quote, disappears again, and Macbeth, undone by this hallucination, now appears to remake himself into the kind of person who can, I don't know, handle killing without losing his mind? It will have blood, they say. Blood will have blood. And he follows this ominous pronouncement with another. He announces to his wife, that he plans to go back and see the, quote, weird sisters again and gain more knowledge of the future so he can figure out how to protect his throne. This is obviously a huge no-no and one that tells you Macbeth is moving quickly away from the quivering guilt monster he was into something quite different, colder, more decisive, more lethal, more um, manly. I am bent to know by the worst means the worst for mine own good all causes shall give way. I am in blood, stepped in so far, that, should I wade no more, returning were as tedious as go o'er. Yeesh. He is essentially saying he might as well keep killing anyone who gets in his way because he is already so guilty there's no use in turning back or repenting. I'm halfway across a river of blood. It's blood either way, so I might as well just keep going. Lady Macbeth is a little befuddled, Maybe you just need a nap or something, she says. And he responds, sure, yeah. And then he reflects on the evening's events. My strange and self-abuse is the initiate fear that wants hard use. We are yet young indeed. He is saying that his momentary crack-up and hallucination of Banquo happened because he is still a young killer. Once he is a seasoned tyrant, he will stay clear-headed and sleep like a baby. So this is the moment, the do-or-die moment, the climax of the play. Shakespeare always placed the climax in the third act, at least according to a dude named Freytag, 
who created a pyramid to visualize the progression of most all tragic narratives. The structure demands that after Act 3, everything that happens is somewhat inevitable, which is kind of strange when you think about it, because we still have two acts remaining. When I told one of my producers, David Silverman, I was doing an episode on Macbeth, he said, oh great, I love Macbeth, but kind of a crappy ending, no? I mean, it's pretty obvious what's going to happen. And that got me to thinking that yes, this is true to some extent. Why indeed is the climax in the middle of the play? Interestingly, Hollywood has figured out a value to this oddly placed climax. Screenwriters and filmmakers call it the midpoint, and it is an almost ironclad rule that all on-screen productions have one. Take Titanic, for example. What happens right in the middle? The ship hits the iceberg. Often the midpoint is the moment when the hero either loses something or finds something that will change things in a substantial way, or it's the moment when a hidden truth is revealed. Whatever it is, it requires the hero to adjust if they want to continue their quest, their journey, their escape, what have you. And it all derives from Shakespeare. How's that for a takeaway? Act four is the third time the word filthy is used. Macbeth says it in reference to the witches. The tyrant king goes to find the witches to extract more prophecies from them. They evoke several apparitions. The first tells him to beware Macduff, a thane who ducked the feast where Banquo's ghost ruined everything. The second says you have nothing to fear unless a forest called Burnham Woods moves toward Dunsinane, Macbeth's castle. He's like, well, that's never going to happen. Then they say that Macbeth doesn't need to worry about anyone who is, quote, of woman born. And he's like, well, cool. Everyone has a mother, so I guess I'm safe. I'll stop worrying about Macduff. Well... Maybe I'll kill him just in case. The fourth apparition is the one that really gets his goat. It is a display of a long line of kings that Banquo's offspring will produce. The final one holds up a mirror, and some scholars have wondered if this was so that when King James was in the audience, they could hold up the mirror to him, visualizing his connection to this line of kings. Macbeth is so unnerved by the vision he calls the witches filthy hags. Hello? You're the one seeking them out, an offense punishable by death as laid out by King James himself, and you're the one basing your whole defensive strategy on their words. <sighs> We've all been here, haven't we, ladies? Men convincing themselves that them wanting us is somehow our fault, and that this means we have power over them, and that therefore, clearly, we have somehow bewitched them. So then they hate us for it. Give a man what he wants, and then he calls you up. Well, anyway, long live the patriarchy. At the end of the act, Macbeth makes good on his promise. He sends assassins to Macduff's castle. Macduff has already amscrayed to England to help other rebel thanes mount an army to invade Scotland and dethrone tyrant Macbeth. But the assassins slaughter everyone they see, wife, kids, the whole household. When Macduff is told the news, he is told to stop crying and, quote, dispute it like a man, meaning suit up and get ready to kick some tyrant tail. Act 5, scene 1, is one of the more powerful and surprising scenes in the play. It opens with Lady Macbeth greatly changed since we last saw her in Act 3 when she was berating Macbeth for being unmanned by his lunatic visions of ghosts. Here, she is a ghostly figure herself, clad only in a nightgown, 
carrying a candle and muttering to herself. A doctor and a servant observe her and say she is sleepwalking. She sets down the candle and begins rubbing her hands furiously. Yet there's a spot, she says. Yep, you guessed it. Madam, watch that filthy witness and a little water clears us of this deed would appear to be suffering some trauma from all that she has pushed deep down inside. Then she utters her most famous words. Out, damn spot, I say. Hell is murky. Who would have thought the old man to have had so much blood in him? Here's the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. The doctor calls her mind infected and says whatever is ailing her is beyond his practice. More needs the divine than the physician, he says. Much of the rest of Act 5 bounces back and forth between the rebel forces gathering to take Macbeth's castle and Macbeth himself basically preparing to die in the inevitable losing battle. He continues to cling to and repeat the witch's prophecies, shakily assuring himself no one can harm him. But then, but then, Malcolm, the rightful king, orders his troops to cut down branches from Burnham Wood to create a cover as they march toward Dunsinane. That's right, the woods are about to move. But before Macbeth finds this out, he hears this news. The queen, my lord, is dead. Lady Macbeth has apparently killed herself. In response, Macbeth delivers his final, most devastating soliloquy, and for my money, the most moving of all Shakespeare's soliloquies. She should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So he seems to be saying that he would have cared more about his wife's death if she died at a more convenient time. He then laments the stupid, dumb pointlessness of life. One day after another, right? Just another case of the Mondays. Oh, look, it's hump day. Thank God it's Friday, and now you're dead. Not only are you tricked into thinking your life has meaning, but you trick others, the Egypts coming behind you, into thinking life has more meaning than just the march to the grave that it in fact is. And not only are you simply going to die, but all that fuss you're making, all that meaning and legacy building, no one's going to remember or care. That's like thinking anyone thinks about actors on a stage once the lights go out. Nope. This whole show we call life is just a tale told by an idiot, which is you full of absolutely and exactly nothing. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to the world's first nihilist. So then some poor schmuck called only the messenger has to come and deliver more bad news, that the woods are, in fact, moving toward Dunsinane, to which Macbeth screams, liar and slave. Now he has doubts about the fiend, a.k.a. the witches. He says he begins to be, quote, weary of the sun, but still, he's going to go down swinging. He suits up in his armor and says, Blow wind, come rack. At least we'll die with harness on our back. 
So after a minor skirmish or two, the big moment happens. Macduff versus Macbeth. Macduff, whose whole family has been killed on the orders of this tyrant king. Macbeth, who was warned of Macduff, but also told he could not come to any harm by any person of woman born. He pretty much says this to Macduff. And Macduff is like, nanny, nanny, poo, poo. I was from my mother's womb untimely ripped. Meaning he was born of a C-section. Get it? Not a C-section in the modern sense, of course. There was no surgery back then. So they would have literally ripped the baby out and then left the mom to die. Why this counts as not a woman born, I do not know. But no one said the witches had to play fair. No backsees on prophecies. Macbeth calls the witches juggling fiends and realized he has been played for a complete fool. So they fight, and of course Macduff wins and cuts off Macbeth's head. Macbeth's head is affixed to a pole to be displayed as, quote, our rarer monsters are. The play ends with peace and the crowning of the rightful king, Duncan's son, Malcolm. And who is on stage at the end? A bunch of men. All of the women are either dead or have disappeared back into fog and filthy air. Why? Because patriarchy, that's why. Get rid of the dirt, meaning the women, and order is restored. So was Shakespeare a misogynist? I have no idea. I kind of doubt it, honestly. And a careful reading of this play, or at least my reading of this play, implies that while it would be easy to blame Macbeth's behavior on the witches and Lady Macbeth, in the end, Macbeth is the master of his own fate. Ruled by blind ambition, he believes what he wants to believe, hears what he wants to hear, and allows the scorpions of his mind to take over. He willingly lets the devil take his soul and allows himself to be hollowed out into a mere shell of a man who will do whatever it takes to keep what he has. A killer who won't stop until he is physically stopped. The witches are smarter than he is, and Lady Macbeth ultimately possesses a more sound moral compass than he does, as she is completely undone by what she and her husband have done. Like Walter White in Breaking Bad, Macbeth is the danger. He is the one who knocks. If you enjoyed this episode of Cocktail Party Takeaways, please show your love. Rate it, like it, download it, and leave a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen. To stay up to date on future episodes, follow me on Twitter at AnnRochelle67. That's A-N-N-E-R-O-C-H-E-L-L 67. My website, AnnRochelle.com, is where you can go for more information about me or about the podcast. That's Ann with an E, Rochelle without. This episode of Cocktail Party Takeaways was recorded and produced by Gus Kenigsmark with original music by Gus Kenigsmark. Cover art by Stuart Key. Cheers, and let's all read more. <laughs>